Welcome back. Thank you, sir. Good to see us. <laughs> hello, this hello. Is, uh, inner name here. I mean, howdy doody. Uh, you know, second best to smartless. Second just, best. Just barely. Yeah, I mean, you know. One month. We got a cease and desist after last week. <laughs> um, it was thanks for coming back. the only email we got. Thanks for coming back. There might be something different that you might have already noticed, and, you know, hopefully it works. Yeah, yeah, hope you liked so, it. Hope you enjoy our new surprise. Surprise! Um, anyways, you'll find. Hopefully, you'll find out what that means. Yeah, just in time for almost a year. That's right. right? We're coming up on a one-year anniversary of this here podcast. How's about it? Go back and listen to some of the old ones, and then see how much we've improved. Because we did that today, and we we feel like we've improved. So. Yeah, maybe skip that first one. <laughs> At least the first and the last part of the first one. I don't know what the middle was like. Yeah. Anyway, so. Um, yeah, uh, this week we're going to do uh, Debunked. Debunked. Is our topic. Um, you know, we both uh, have uh, interesting topics we're going to talk about, and the other one doesn't know what we're going to talk about. Yeah, it's all a surprise for everybody except for the reader. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I mean, although some of you may or may not have heard of the Maybe stories we're going to talk you about. You never know. Yeah. This one, uh, I'm going to do it. We're going to do a little bit different because I have a a special debunked one that's only it's relevant because it's happening right now as we speak <clears throat> as we speak yes there's a whole subsection of this entire country that is losing their mind over this conspiracy that is easy to debunk with any sort of common sense <laughs> all right um it, it involves taylor swift oh. and travis kelsey right obviously nobody's ever heard of these people right right yeah, I don't know who you're talking about. There's a uh, growing segment that believes that this relationship is a psyop for the deep state. Oh. Or it's the uh, Biden campaign trying to use Taylor Swift for their own nefarious reasons, including to get uh, a uh, endorsement from Taylor Swift. <clears throat> Huh. Uh, so what is the real meaning behind this budding relationship and budding love affair? Okay, Tell me more. Taylor and Travis started dating last year, and uh, they were both 33, right? <laughs> right. Taylor Thir three and plus Travis. three equals six, and six is the number that the devil uses frequently, right? Oh, right. So that's the beginnings of this. Do okay. I need to start writing this down? No, you don't have okay. to, because it's, it's obviously horse shit. <laughs> I'm just trying to keep track. Um, <laughs> Taylor's favorite... I've got it all written down. I'll send okay. it to you. Um, Taylor's favorite number is 13. Huh. This year's Super Bowl, number 58. What's 5 plus 8? 13. Oh. Taylor's, Taylor has a concert the day before the uh, Super Bowl. It's in Tokyo. How long of a flight do you think it is from Tokyo to Las Vegas? Oh, it's something like 78 hours. 13 hours. <laughs> Taylor's favorite number. Oh, hmm. look at that. What is going on here? Yeah, tell me more. Well, apparently the NFL's rigged. I mean, I believe that. This is that. a long-standing thought <laughs> process, which would be insanely impossible. I think that there's ways that they can manipulate games. Right. But to think that the thing is rigged is... I mean, manipulating is rigging. Right. I mean, how else do they get Taylor Swift for free this year? Well, right. <laughs> it's the, the rig, it's rigged to make sure that Travis Kelsey would be in the Super Bowl this year. Yeah, absolutely. Right, because it's definitely rigged that they've been in four of the last five. I and mean, I will say that Kansas City <clears throat> has sucked since September. 
Well, <laughs> so. also, I mean, it, Travis Kelsey is might go down as the greatest tight end to ever play I agree professional football. Yeah, he is amazing. So it's not like they've like made this guy that was nobody into something right. for this, yeah, right? He is a big reason. They so, are what and they, they also are. there's also this outrage over how much time they pan to uh, Tay Tay during <laughs> Chiefs games. Right. Uh, the most recent game last week, she was on screen for 30 seconds of the entire broadcast, the four-hour broadcast. Oh. <laughs> <clears throat> uh, and I'll give you a, a bonus Zach fact for this episode, which would be during a football broadcast, the amount of actual football being played is around 11 minutes of the game. So there's actually football going on for 11 minutes. They showed her for 30 seconds. They showed Andy Reid's frozen mustache (laughs) more than that, right? Okay. But think about all the other things that they broadcast, you know, fans, celebrities. Right. For some reason, there's this obsession with Taylor Swift. Because she, at one point, did use her platform to encourage people to vote, and just to vote, recently. Right. And uh, the biggest day of enrollment in Vote.org's history happened for people just enrolling. She didn't say who to vote for in anything. <clears throat> she did, re- previously in Tennessee, told people to vote against Marsha Blackburn, who uh, she, Taylor Swift said was Trump in a wig. Uh-oh. So, that's the only time that. she's ever said to vote for somebody or right. against somebody <clears throat> and even during all even after all that marcia blackburn has come out to support taylor swift and that's in like saying you guys are being ridiculous there's no conspiracy theory here sure right sure and um so the the the, the theory is that taylor's going to use her fame and online presence to come out and support joe biden for re-election maybe even during the halftime show of the super bowl <laughs> By the way, Usher is the uh, halftime show entertainment. Yeah, Usher is the halftime show. Probably not going to have Taylor Swift on there. I don't know. We right. we, we may know next week. Right. Um, or maybe at the end of the game, and they, you know, that's to assure that the Chiefs are going to win, and then then Travis can propose to her, right. and they can both come out and approve of Joe Biden to manipulate the deep state yeah i mean i still think if there's any conspiracy it's just so the nfl can have more people watch because taylor swift is there right well their 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 viewership has increased a ton exactly and that's their their business they're they're gonna make money and so i'm like if it is fixed somehow like that's the reason they're doing it. one of the reasons why there's such a problem also for the travis kelsey side is he's a spokesman for pfizer and the Pfizer COVID vaccine. Oh, right. Also, Bud Light. And, you know, those are two, the two of the most evil companies to ever Indeed. grace the planet. And, you know, they're obviously woke and trying to indoctrinate children and to microchip us, right? So, <laughs> um, and so they, they, don't, they don't understand. There's no other reason why these two people would get together. They're, they're the same age and they liked each other, apparently. Like he was. They're both going after famous. Her. Right. It happens all the time. <laughs> right. Right, it's kind of like a, a American type of like you know, singer pop star gets with football player superstar, kiss and have fun and yeah. all of, at the football games, you know. Um, <clears throat> the only real explanation that they really have is that Joe Biden's trying to take over the world and start his one world government, <laughs> and I'd say that it's going to be called the Come On Man Empire. <laughs> um, so both of them have been built up by the media. This is according to many people online and these are like major news networks are talking about this this isn't like 
I found this down some Reddit thread. Oh, sure, yeah. This I mean, is on... I've, I've heard these things. Newsmax, OAN, yeah. Faux News, you know, all those. <laughs> um, both have been built up at the, by the media for years, to, to, just for this moment. Taylor Swift's, you know, celebrity started 15 years ago, and they, this was all to plan ahead to get Joe Biden reelected in 2024. <laughs> <clears throat> um. And Seth Meyers on his late night show created his own thoughts about this relationship. He said, Joe Biden is the 46th president. His second term is 46. 46 times 2, 92. Kelsey's number is 87. 92 minus 87 equals 5. What has five sides? The Pentagon. <laughs> so, well done. <laughs> um, Taylor and Travis have not yet announced, even if they, if they even will, right? Who they will or won't endorse in any elections. Right. This is just nonsense. Keep people angry over nothing. Yeah. But it's yeah. totally debunked immediately as soon as you hear it. Right. I just thought it was so interesting that it's like. Except for the part about the NFL being rigged. Right. You haven't debunked that to me. Well, <laughs> also to think that like. I don't Two think of they, the best players in the league are on the same team. How do they just manage to make it to the Super Bowl all the time? You know, like this season—that's a good question. Well, apparently you didn't watch them. I watched. The, <laughs> I watched the playoff games, they, which they won. Yeah, yeah, they did. You know, somehow. Yeah, mistakes from other teams. <clears throat> anyway, so I'll keep you up to date on that if there's anything more about it. But I mean, you know, be careful. Taylor Swift's working for the DJ. Yeah, for real. <laughs> so I wanted to make sure we got that one in before we. Yeah, and you know, I don't think else. she, if there is a conspiracy, she has nothing to do with it herself. <laughs> like, right. I don't think she has any sort she of... She doesn't uh, need the NFL right. to she, be She has nothing famous. to gain from something. I mean, she does, but you know... I'd the, argue that she might be more famous worldwide than the absolutely, NFL. Absolutely, for sure There's she is. There's people in places that never even watch the NFL yeah. that know who Taylor Swift is. I mean, is. I guarantee she is, yeah, so, for sure. Anyway. But anyway, so, on to some news. <laughs> for the week <laughs> and this one actually is kind of similar because it was a good debunking though i sounded like i didn't agree with you sorry that's all right <laughs> um we're gonna go to minnesota minnesota and every year minnesota holds uh they try to name uh get people to help them name their snow plows they have 800 snow plows and uh in 2020 they started naming them and uh they already have every year they add names to it so then the truck gets the name spray painted onto the truck okay. and that's its name forever um some of the uh finalists uh include the name beyond slay <laughs> taylor drift and aaron burr sir b-r-r-r-r burr <laughs> right. um voting continues through this uh, January I think voting's already closed I'm sorry and uh, they don't need to be a Minnesota resident to weigh in and uh, they've agency, agency new officials in Scotland had named snowplows for years and years and decided to take a similar effort in Minnesota to draw attention to their winter work you know to hmm make awareness that they do this stuff that there's not those guys yeah i mean it's a it's a, a long job basically right um the uh response in the first year of the contest was overwhelming with about twenty four thousand submissions and one hundred twenty two thousand votes cast 
Uh, participation has dropped over the years, but remains strong with about 8,000 submissions for the latest contest. Wow. Besides Plowy McPlowface and Darth Blader, winners <laughs> over the years have included Blizzard of Oz, Scoop Dog, and, and Han Snowlow. Uh, there's, al- there's also Minnesota connections to the names F, F. Salt Fitzgerald and uh, the truck formerly known as Plow as a, as a uh, reference for Prince. And other states have started to follow along with this kind of thing. Uh, New Mexico launched its first, in- first Name a Snowpaw contest this winter, getting 1,500 submissions and 23,000 votes, votes to name the 12, 12 of their, their plows. I'm sorry. Sleepwood Mac. Nice. Mr. Snow at all and Billy the Skid are all winners in New Mexico. Billy the Skid. <laughs> There's some great ones. Uh yeah. it, this this whole thing kind of started years ago when um uh what was the <laughs> Bodie McBoatface oh, was right. voted as the number one name. That ended up not being the name of the boat, but Yeah, Potty McPod. So other places are doing it right. Um Lincoln, Nebraska <laughs> this year also did theirs and Cleopatra took the honors as the, the top selection. Cleopatra. <laughs> so, yeah, Plowy McPlowface is a favorite for many of the contests. And I mean, they keep, they, for me, that's already been done, you know? Like, right. Uh, but, I mean, some of those are so funny. I mean, yeah, yeah, yeah. There was the some Blizzard good of Oz, <laughs> Taylor Drift. So, you know, keep an eye out. I don't know if your state will do it, but, you know. Yeah, kind of fun. Does New Mexico get a lot of snow? I'd say the maybe the, the northern, yeah, the upper plateau. I don't yeah. know what I'm talking about. The outer upper area 51. <laughs> I guess they probably are uh, pretty high elevation wise. Certain parts are. Yeah, yeah. yeah. I don't know. I've never been. Yeah, I have to look it up. So yeah, make sure to put in your votes for. Uh, I guess it's probably already closed. But. <laughs> check it out anyway <laughs> coming next year that's right think of some funny names you can get on yeah there. you can start right now send them to us we'll submit them that's right there you go there you go new proyecto oh yeah um i got a news story all right um and i guess it's kind of a debunking in its own way uh an explorer believes he's found Amelia Earhart's plane. Oh. Though uh, experts aren't convinced. <laughs> I, I, I saw the uh, news the other day when they were talking about that. Oh, yeah, you saw it on the news. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it was just this past week uh, that the story came out. Um, let's see if I can get I'm sorry. I'm, I'm, <clears throat> yeah, Tony, this guy's name is Tony Romeo. Oh. Or, or Romeo, maybe. <laughs> Tony Romeo. But still Tony Romeo. Tony Romeo, the chief executive of Deep Sea Vision, says that a sonar image that his company captured during an, during an expedition last year appears to show a plane resting about three miles down on the bottom of the Pacific Ocean, somewhere within a 100-mile radius of Howland Island. He won't give the precise location, of course, because, you know... He doesn't want somebody else going yeah, there and finding it first. Thunder, make that money. Yeah, and I've seen uh, some of the images here in this. Uh, it's a New York Times story, and definitely looks like it's a plane. Um, considering they haven't been down to it or anything right. like that, like, like there isn't a whole lot more in this article. But I'm like, why would you think that's here? Like, well, they, it's a plane. <laughs> they found a plane, right, and they, they think found it's, a plane. it's near the area where she was thought to be heading to refuel. 
But also, like, I mean, there's how many hundreds of planes are in that area because of the war and, you know, just right. in general, the area. Like, there's probably a lot of planes that didn't make that island that's right. in the middle of nowhere. A lot of these experts believe, yeah, it's probably like a war plane of some sort. Yeah, I've seen them saying, like, maybe it's, think it's shaped more like a bomber from the from World right. War II or something. Yeah, I think it's interesting because I saw the sonar picture. Mm-hmm. And... I mean, you could tell it was like the outline of an airplane. It looked like an airplane, but, but it's like the, it's they like were using foot. sonar from you know like the <laughs> second season of Bonanza or something. Right. You know, like yeah, it's like all the pictures of Bigfoot all of a sudden. Like Hogan's Heroes had better kind of imaging than they did, <laughs> and then you think about it, like James Cameron took a submarine down to the Titanic and like drove around and checked it out, right. They can't get. I don't know how deep this airplane is, but they can't get like a camera yeah, down sure there. It said like, somewhere that article, grainy but... old like first generation <laughs> right. Atari graphics. Well, I guess this guy was using his like his new the way that he was like. However, getting because he was image, like some but... sort of like investment yeah, banker, deep that sea visions, using his money to right be a modern day Which, explorer. I mean, it's kind of cool, like whatever, like you do your right. thing, buddy. I mean, maybe it is her plane, like you know. I mean, whatever. <laughs> <laughs> I just thought it was. I, I, I doubt it's her plane myself, but you know, I mean, the odds are greatly not in that favor. Yeah. But I mean, you know, it is a plane. If the very least, it could be somebody else that was missing that they can yeah. close their story. And that's why I'm know? like, yeah. I mean, sure, keep exploring because who knows what you'll right. find. I mean, look, the, there's worse things billionaires can spend money <laughs> exactly. on. Exactly. So, I mean, kind of funny that his name's Tony Romeo. But to follow that up, I have another Amelia Earhart story oh, from this past like they week found or so. Her. <laughs> No, no, no. Um, nothing so great as that. But they did find the um, a long-lost aviator helmet that belonged to her. It's been oh. part of a century in a closet somewhere in Minnesota. So Minnesota huh. again. How do they know that it was hers? Let's see. Um, let me get to that part of the article here. Um, the cap looked very much like the aviator's helmet she wore for her first transatlantic flight in 1928. It had been missing since an air race in 1929. This was the same race from which Earhart's leather goggles went missing, later found with lenses missing and donated in 1957 to the Smithsonian. Um, so I think it just looks like it. The story of Earhart's iconic helmet began as part of a 1928 marketing stunt in an office in Times Square where the idea of the Lady Lindy was created. So it's just a bunch of history on that. But yeah, it looked like the helmet. <laughs> so um let's see i'm getting to the part where it's supposed to tell me even though no no hmm. on the rare occasion that his mother recounted the story she might i'm sorry yeah i don't know it doesn't tell me right here exactly how they uh it's all about this um it just happens to look like so it. the the article is about this guy who found it and his mother um i guess had participated in in some uh, respect in all of these sorts of air events like, oh she uh, was the lady that was going around stealing shit out of airplanes it could have been her it was that, yeah yeah i mean the gist of the story I, I i'm sorry i read it several days ago so <laughs> i wasn't quite prepared for this one but uh but yeah it's about this guy's mother who uh was involved in a lot of air shows a lot of air things and uh, certainly was around amelia Earhart quite a bit and had i think been gifted this uh <laughs> this thing that ended up in a closet and everyone always thought it was just a rumor that it was amelia Earhart's helmet and it turns out that somehow they proved that it was and it's like oh wow like that is her helmet and so yeah that's the story huh. so because the uh, the headline was um an amelia Earhart mystery solved not that mystery 
<laughs> no, because so, of that yeah, other like, thing going on. Because the helmet had been missing for a very long time, and uh, how it ended up in the closet, I, I, I mean, I think it was a gift, but they're not 100% sure, because everybody in the family always thought it was just a story. <laughs> so, because their mom, their, their grandmother was involved in, like, flight airplanes yeah, and all this kind thief, of stuff. Is what like, she was. Might have been a thief. She was just stealing yeah. shit out yeah, of the Yeah, I wonder who airplanes. donated the goggles back in 1959 or whatever. Her accomplice. Yeah, sorry that story was only half-assed, but got That's the point right. across. It was kind of weird to find two Amelia Earhart uh, stories. When yeah, but it's kind of like any of it. Now you'll see a lot of Amelia Earhart stories come up right. because... Well, it's definitely something the name that is relevant again. came up for me when we were just trying to find a debunked story I wanted to talk about. And I was like, well, nothing has been debunked here, but <laughs> like, I want to talk about Amelia Earhart, damn it. And so I got to. All, All right. right. Yeah. So there you go. Well, Happy New Year. Um, I'm not sure where she's from, but I don't think she's from Florida. I don't think she's from Florida, but, although that's just a guess, to be quite honest But with this you. guy is. This guy... Uh, <laughs> Um, a Florida man is seeking $50,000 in damages after he said a toilet at a Dunkin', Don- Dunkin Donuts location exploded and covered him in debris, oh. feces, and urine. Um, this, was filed, this was filed in Orange County uh, this past Wednesday on behalf of Paul Kerouac. Oh. Uh, and he alleges that he visited the men's room at the Winter Park Dunkin' outside of Orlando on January 6, 2022. And the commode erupted, leaving the plaintiff and the loo covered in his in its contents. After the incident, the plaintiff said he sought help from the employees who told him they were aware of the issue as prior incidents had occurred. <laughs> Even better. <laughs> uh, Kerouac is seeking $50,000 in damages on account of the alleged negligence of the Duncan, the formerly known as Duncan Donuts location. Uh, as a direct result of defendant's breach and or multiple breaches of its duties and obligation to plaintiff, uh, who was lawfully on the defendant's premises, plaintiff unwillingly became the victim of the exploding toilet in the aftermath which followed and sustained damages, including injuries and emotional and mental distress. <laughs> Duncan declined to comment as the litigation involves a franchise location. So, I think that's a little low, if that really happened. Fifty thousand bucks, right? You got covered in d- coffee shop doo doo. There's tons of that in there. Yeah, and how did this happen? Right. Yeah. That's the. How does this happen? With, without it doesn't say anything about any sort of firecrackers or anything. I don't know how a toilet explodes. Right. Like what's going on in this? I I don't know. But it, I just thought it was very interesting. Yeah. That, yeah. Yeah. No. Yeah. That seems like a. You should get more than that. Like, I would ask for more than that. Yeah, more than fifty grand. Surely they I got asked covered for more in than that. a public bathroom's shit. Yeah, who knows? And debris. Shit. It said debris, debris, feces, and urine. I mean, obviously, two of those things are commonly found in toilets. <laughs> Maybe pants. Yeah, but not exploded all over you. Hmm. Yeah, it's, <laughs> right. It's interesting. Yeah. So I, mean, I don't know if we'll find anything. Of course, it was Florida, though. You know, why wouldn't it be? Yeah. Yeah, for real. That's a shitty way to start your day. Hey. hey. You knew it was coming. Wow. That was good, though. That so, was good. Yeah. That's, that's quite funny of you. You got any more news for us? No, I um, I had some other stories, to be honest. I covered but, uh, them. I covered them with doo-doo. <laughs> you didn't cover them, but uh, I, felt like, I feel like we've covered the news, right? 
Yeah. Yeah. I mean, unless you've got something I else. Mean, I, I've uh, got plenty of other things that the, are built up. The other but, one know, I had, I'll uh, I, save it for yeah, a later yeah, date. We'll save it for a we're good where we are because I feel yeah. like those all kind of work together. So, okay. You know, we're moving good now, folks. Much better than yeah. previous episodes. Almost professional. Almost. Getting there. Yeah. Anyway, so, uh, like I said, this time we're going to do debunked. You already got, like, the bonus debunked. Yeah, I've got a, a couple, couple debonus. That, that, that too. Deboned debunked. That too. De- Deboned and debunked. And that guy was dethroned from yeah. the toilet. Season 2, episode 19. That's right. Wow. I think it's 18. 18. Anyways. <laughs> so, um, debunked could be conspiracy theories, could be anything else. Yeah. Um, mine just happens to be a conspiracy theory. Yours does. Yes. Yeah, so you're going down the rabbit hole this week. Sort of. Yeah. yeah. It's a little north of a rabbit hole, though. <laughs> Right. So, uh, anyways, <laughs> Japan and Russia, you ever heard of them? Tell me more. Okay. Well, they've always had a pretty tumultuous relationship <laughs> with each other. Huh. Uh, during the early 1900s until 1917, however, they put aside their differences and cooperated with, the, with, with each other in developing Manchuria, uh, as well as when World War I came around and they fought as allies, nominal allies, against the germans right. so just in name only like they weren't going to fight each other right they're going be- after the germans but not because they're friends <laughs> right and uh after the bolshevik bolshevik revolution ended in november of 1917 the two countries made one final deal before returning to their previous disdain for one another okay so <laughs> during this deal they concocted a plan to create a con- country that didn't really exist and on december 16th 1917 a country declared its independence from the russian empire and that country was uh named finland no i did not know that uh but there was one glaringly big issue here and that finland wasn't and isn't real okay i think i'm following you okay well the country of finland was in fact made up to hide what is actually in that area which is a sea that stretches from russia to sweden (laughs) <laughs> why would these two countries collude to create a country that wasn't there and how could they get away with it right. what mysterious motives could they have behind this misdirection for the world right? yeah, yeah. so the new government of what would become the Soviet Union so it was just the fall of the Russian Empire and the Bolsheviks took over it didn't become the Soviet Union until later name wise right right um Nominally. They, they they needed uh, they needed things like money and food, right? Especially after the Bolshevik Re- Revolution, there were a lot of people starving. There was a lot of you know they were broke. Yeah, you know, the whole country was in disarray. Dead broke. So the Russians they they worked with the Japanese and hashed out a plan that would benefit both of them. Japan would benefit would have unregulated fishing rights to the Finnish Sea. <laughs> which is where they want you to believe Finland actually is. is it's the okay? Finnish it's Sea. It's the Finnish Sea, in fact. And the Soviets would use the Trans-Siberian Railroad, which had, you know, been finished up in 1904. So, you know, kind of good timing. Yeah. You know, was that part of it? And You know. And so they would use the Trans-Siberian Railroad to ship the fish from the ports of, on the Russian coast of the Finnish Sea to the Sea of Japan which is where the 
start and finish of the it goes to those two places right so hmm. um in exchange russia russia would get some of the fish and they would make money to transport the cargo okay so so whenever the fruits of the japanese fishermen's labor were shipped back to japan they were shipped in containers that are always labeled nokia which was a finnish company that at the time was associated with rubber cables and had previously before that been a pulp mill so you know they kind of using this name nokia to really ship it okay right. uh the arrangement works out well even to this day because russia still gets the same benefits as always money and food and japan gets the fish without any environmental or regulatory repercussions wow because you know after all who's going to expect any rules to be broken in regards to fishing and drilling for oil in a place where everyone thinks there's a country <laughs> right. there's no everybody thinks there's land there so they can do what they want so i'm sure you have questions and i'm sure they're the same questions as everyone else asks about this and so let's get into some of those questions <laughs> please so who is the whistleblower that revealed this information to the world I'm not even sure what they've revealed yet, necessarily. Finland's not real. Oh, but so, okay. That's right. the entire thing. I'm still stuck on Nokia. Well, Nokia is just the shipping company for the fish. Right. I thought maybe them making phones was going to come in at some point. We're not there yet. Okay. You're jumping ahead. Well, you know, I'm just... Okay. That's what we're talking about. Okay. Who's the whistleblower <laughs> that revealed this to the world? The original Reddit thread was posted nine years ago by a user named Violently Average. And the question was, what did your parents show you that you assumed was completely normal, only to later discover that it was not normal at all? Uh, a user named Rargan responded to this post and released the, the groundbreaking information. <laughs> okay, so, well, firstly, they say that the actual place of Finland is just eastern Sweden. Helsinki is in eastern Sweden, and when people fly there, it's not like they would notice. Okay, the idea that the entire country is made up is so bizarre that nobody would ever believe it, making it easy to do. Huh. <laughs> Rargan goes on to give an overview and later edited the post to say, I'm amazed how big this has gotten. I told my parents, and although they don't really understand Reddit, they're glad that the truth's being put out there for people to make their own decisions. <laughs> since since the original post, there have been thousands of upvotes and probably equal number of comments on Rargan's posts. Okay. Right. And so these are some of the things that have been released regarded, regarding the conspiracy. Okay, so what about Finnish people? Are they all in on it? And what about Finnish culture? Right. Okay, so people from Finland are not, as far as we can tell, in on the conspiracy. They genuinely believe that they're from Finland. In reality, they're all from small towns on, e on the, the, either, the eastern part of Sweden, the western part of Russia, or the northern part of Estonia. Okay, so they're still living in this area, but they think that they're not where they really are. All right. Um, and when you have a collective of a few million people identifying as Finnish, then of course a culture will be built on this, right? So um, people have been manipulated to believe that Finland exists, and so they also believe that their towns and cities are actually in Finland, which they're not. Many of the residents could possibly be paid actors that help to maintain the status quo. Uh, but, you know, some some of this just conspiracy theorists love paid actors. That's right. Like, yeah. Like, so what about Helsinki? <clears throat> it's an enormous city. It has 1.6 million people, and 12 percent of the entire population of Finland is in Helsinki. 
Well, this says that Helsinki is located in eastern Sweden. I think it's more likely to be located in northern Est- uh, Estonia because it's very close. You can see Estonia from what people think is Helsinki. Right? There's a, there's a, there's a gulf right. on the map. There's a gulf that's right next to Sweden, in between Sweden and Finland. Okay. So it's more likely that it's in um, southern Finland, northern Estonia, same place. <clears throat> southern Sweden, northern Estonia. No, Sweden's over here. Right. On the left of But if Finland. Finland doesn't exist, it can't be in southern Finland. Well, that's what they want you to think. Right. It's really in northern Estonia. Fair enough. Okay. Still trying to figure out how in this conspiracy theory maps work. But well, whatever. We'll get there. Okay. What about everywhere else in Finland? Okay. There's a lot to it. It can't all be made up. <laughs> 99% of Finland is forest. A lot of it doesn't need to be accounted for when addressing geography of the country. Okay. <laughs> sure. So why do other countries go along with this? Well, the answer is at first it was a sign of goodwill between Western countries and the Soviet Union and Japan. A bargaining chip, perhaps. Um, But Finland has since evolved into something much more. It's now an idealistic placeholder for which countries should should aspire to. No real country could so consistently place first in education, health care, gender equality, literacy rates, stability, (laughs) freedom of the press, least corrupt government in the world. So it's really a concept for countries and people to aspire to. But see, that's where the problems about Finland's existence are disputed. No, no country in the world could possibly be that good, right? Right. So, um, why the name Finland? The country was originally made for fishing. What do fish have? Fins. Therefore, <laughs> Finland. And the Japanese word for fin is fin. The Russian word for Finn is Plavnik, so Plavnikland probably wouldn't have sounded as good, so they went with Finland. (laughs) Right. Okay. So what about all the other exports of Finland besides Nokia? Well, their three biggest and most well-known areas of industry are oil, tech, and software. The oil is gathered offshore platforms where the rest of us believe that the landmass is, but it's really just the sea. Um, and again, the Japanese get to avoid regulations in this respect as well, and so do the Russians. Um, at its peak in 2000, Nokia made up 4% of the country's GDP. And uh, their first logo, this is a Zach fact for you, <laughs> uh, their first logo was of a fish to symbolize the area where the company was headquartered. Huh. Um, this was obviously just putting it out there to show their real intentions, but... It's often overlooked, and uh, now there's no inference as to what the company's real business is about now with their logo. Right. Okay. Japan also used to be a world leader in Nokia imports, even though very few Japanese people use their devices, and that's true. Um, and I don't think many people at all use their devices anymore, right? No. <laughs> even though they're, they not, not, they're not in cell phones, but they do other things. They're right. still in existence. Yeah. Um, software companies can easily redirect their IP address through the Finnish Sea and other Finnish exports. It, this is from directly from the threads. It's, well, claiming Santa comes from your country isn't a viable way to get people to believe in it. Okay? <laughs> Finnish language. How's that? Well, if you look up the similarities between Japanese and Finnish, it may surprise you how similar they are. And that's really weird considering how far away they are from each other. 
But I did find a couple of videos where Finnish speakers talk about how easy it was for them to, to learn Japanese. <laughs> so you were talking about the globes, right? Right. Why? <laughs> Why? What about GPS, satellite images, and uh, maps and globes? Yeah. Well, it's all manipulated and forged. Of course. In the parts of Estonia, Sweden, and Russia that are allocated as Finnish zones, the GPS locations are changed to match that of Finland. Satellite images are forged. World maps are altered as it's a conspiracy by the UN to keep people believing in Finland. <laughs> the UN. Um, the idea that an entire country is made up seems so bizarre that nobody would ever believe it anyway, so this is all easy to do. Okay? Hmm. Um, I mean, I think it'd be easier to rig the NFL. Right. This enormous <laughs> conspiracy to keep secret. How could nobody else realize it? Other people have realized it. But imagine the ridiculousness of saying, I don't believe Finland exists. I mean, I'll give them that one. <laughs> it's, you know. <laughs> like, if it's true, fair enough. <laughs> right. Okay, another question that's often asked, have you ever been to Finland? Have you ever been to yeah, Finland? Certainly not. Do you personally know anybody that's been to Finland? Yes. Do you? Yeah. Do you know anybody from Finland? Yes. Do you know? How, can they prove it? Uh, I mean, I, I doubtful. <laughs> I'm well, kidding. I'm sure they probably can. I, I don't know them that well. well I don't. I've never been to Finland, and I've yeah. never met anybody from Finland. Yeah. So uh, obviously, I mean, uh, to be fair, it's only one person that I know that has gone, and the same person that I know from there is the person they went to visit. So. Okay. <laughs> well, I looked up the most famous Finnish person, and it's Jean Sibelius. Who is that? Um, he created the uh, Sibelio <laughs> thing. Yeah, no, he's a composer. Oh, uh, right. I, I, anyways, so. <laughs> Anyway, most people don't know anybody that's been to Finland or claims to have been to Finland. <laughs> I find so that it's hard easy. to believe, too, but fair enough. Finland I, 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 doesn't I have a lot one. of tourism. <laughs> but still. Um, I'm sure that everyone listening now is completely on board with this entire conspiracy. I'm sure they are. And uh, they also believe that Finland does not actually exist. But since this is all about debunked, I have some uh, Huanat Iwatutaset. Which is Finnish for bad news. <laughs> Which is that Finland does, in fact, actually exist. <laughs> well done. You're speaking. Um, I love it when you speak other languages. Yeah. Who are not Utaset is how you say it. That's two mm. words. I, I spelled it out phonetically. I don't know how to spell the words. Oh, okay. All right. Um, the conspiracy is a perfect example of what's called Poe's Law which is named for an online commentator named Nathan Poe, who in 2005 brought, up, brought this up in the context of creationism and intelligent design. Poe's law states that it's hard to tell if someone is serious or joking about extreme beliefs online because there are no clear cues. So people might mistake satire for real opinions and real opinions for satire. Indeed. It's like when you can't tell if someone's being serious or sarcastic in text messages, and I totally know what that's like. <laughs> I, Yeah. Uh, I, I should text very simply, but I'm, I'm me. I can't. <laughs> so, okay, now we'll get into some real facts, all right? December 6, 1917, Finland actually did declare independence from the Russian Empire. That is their Independence Day. Well, okay. So. December 16th? 6th. 6th. 1917. Right. Uh, Pre-Amelia Earhart. 
<laughs> yeah, my history only goes back so far. It is the eighth largest country in Europe, and uh, it's got wow. a 5.5 million people in it, and it's 130,000 square miles. <laughs> <That's> huge. <laughs> well, it's a lot of land and not a lot of people, Yeah. right? Okay. 10% of the country, not 100%, but 10% is water. 69% is forest. So it's, oh, wow. it, it, it is, is a, a peninsula a with the Gulf of Finland, which is not the Finnish Sea, the Baltic Sea, and the Gulf of Bothnia, which is between Sweden and Finland. And the Gulf of Bothnia, I'd said, is how Mike Tyson would say Bosnia. <laughs> Bosnia. You ever been to Bothnia? <laughs> Anyways. Uh, uh, Finland does con- cons- consistently rank as the world's happiest country. And the most stable. They rank number one in many categories. Education, all education in Finland is free education provided mm-hmm. by the state. But that doesn't work. Right. Um, the top public library usage in the world, 80% of Finland's use the library regularly. Hmm. And uh, they have 308 public libraries and two national libraries in that. And that's a lot for that's, that population. Yeah. Um, another Zach fact for you. The rest of Europe's adults use their libraries an average of 25%. It's so more than Finland, I would have Finland guessed, Finland uses but... 80%. Wow. Um, it's considered to be the best country on earth to be a woman, and they were the first country in Europe to allow every adult to vote all the way back in Europe. Or all the way back in 1906, <laughs> I'm sorry. All the way back in yeah. Europe. <laughs> Third country in the world to allow women to vote. Wow. Um, Happened to know the other two? Got those right there? Yeah, New Zealand was the first, except, and and Australia was second, but Australia didn't allow Aboriginal women to vote until much, 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 much later. (laughs) But, you know, obviously the white people could vote. Yeah. Um, You you and a lot of other people would really love Finland because, on average, (laughs) they drink 26 and a half pounds of coffee a year per person. Oh, wow. That's why they're so happy. The world average is 2.8 pounds a year. <laughs> they drink about 4.7 cups of coffee a day. Yeah. And they have mandated coffee breaks for workers. Damn straight. I am moving yeah. to Finland. I doubt that you can. I don't think you can just walk <laughs> into those countries and just move in. <laughs> right. They just don't like. Kind of like New Zealand. Like anywhere nice. They're like, nah. Yeah. They're like, well, you, you file and come back in 30 years. We'll let you know. <laughs> right. Um, there are some things that, you know, like I said, the conspiracy is totally absurd. But people people enjoy it like the birds aren't real. It's obviously, mm-hmm. most people, it's a tongue-in-cheek thing. Yeah, it was a yeah, very similar, uh, yeah. Um, right. With a lot of the, like, claims is, you know, <laughs> the, the answers are the same kind of thing. <laughs> right. Um, the Finns refer to their country as Sumi. S-O-U-M-I, and there are a couple of theories as to where this comes from, and this is all true. <clears throat> One theory is that Sumi comes from the word Suma, which means swampland in Finnish. Uh, the southwestern part of the country is home to numerous lakes, which could look like swampland to outsiders. Uh, the, another theory is that the word comes from Sumu, which means scale of a fish, suggesting the fin- people in Finland wore clothes made out of fish skins. I don't know if they were like, you know, if people thought of them as, you know, from Waterworld or something. Yeah, I mean, that's kind of what I imagine. But, I mean, I'd say that fishing has always been a very important thing, and there's probably yeah. a lot of... But that... And so, Sumu, it's probably the reason why they call their country uh, Sumi, S-O-U-M-I, Sumai, 
maybe i don't know exactly how to say finish is really difficult yeah it sounds like it <laughs> uh the key exports that they do have are electronics transportation heavy machinery chemicals metal minerals and forest products uh they are an energy importer and they don't have very much of any fossil fuels of their own so there would be no reason for the japanese to do illegal oil rigging in the finnish sea <laughs> Nokia was founded in 1865 as a pulp mill and later got into rubber and making cables. And since the 90s, they focused on telecommunications, infrastructure, technology development, and licensing. And for a decade, in 19, starting in 1998, they're the largest seller of mobile phones and smartphones on the planet. And after a series of poor management decisions in 2008, Nokia pulled out completely from the Japanese market, which was their biggest market. Hmm. completely they're not there at all not even a sign uh, and today nokia still employs eighty six thousand people across 100 countries and is the 147th largest company in the world oh and wow did all behind the scenes now all, all shipping fish is how they really <laughs> um pulping trees shipping fish as far as maps globes gps and such and, and globes yeah. why <laughs> right. Yeah, I mean, the most obvious. The uh, information that we have in regards to Finland is actually true. Yeah, I imagine there's that. No, there's no altering of maps to hide Thank God. You know the Finnish Sea. You had me worked up. Um, the Japanese and Russians don't have the best relations, however. And even though they ended their formal state of war after World War II in what's called the Soviet-Japanese Joint Declaration of 1956, and that allowed cultural and economic exchanges to continue... As of 2022, the two have not actually signed a peace treaty from World War II. Oh, wow. Uh, there's four remote islands that the Soviets invaded and seized at the end of the war, and the Russians want to keep them. And they, the Japanese feel that they're theirs. The Japanese call them the Northern Territories, and the Russians call them the Kurils, K-U-R-I-L-S. Hmm. Uh, diplomatic negotiations fell apart after the Russian invasion of Ukraine and the, subse and the subsequent condemnation by the Japanese. And I'll give you a, a, another uh, Zach fact. All right. The United States is technically still in war with uh, North Korea since no peace treaty was signed, even though the active fighting ended in 1953. Oh, wow. Yeah, I didn't yeah. know that either. So. Thanks for the Zach fact. Yeah. Zach. Finnish people do exist. Yes. As does their culture and their language. Finnish and Swedish are the two official languages of Finland. And if you want to look up some really long words, look up town names in Finland. <laughs> One of them is a quarter mile long. A quarter mile The long. word is a quarter right. mile long. And only two uh, vowels in the whole thing. <laughs> yeah, lots of K's and L's. And, um, there are other similar conspiracies that are similar to this one, in case they're similar. Right. I'll say it again. <laughs> Uh, one claims that Australia doesn't actually exist, and the most famous one is that a town called Bielefeld, Bielefeld in Germany doesn't exist, and that one has that town has three hundred forty thousand people, oh, wow. and there's and it's the same conspiracy for all three basically. Hmm. Um, it's only propagated by they, the one about Germany, which conspired with authorities to create the illusion that the city exists. It asks the same three questions as the Finland conspiracy asked. Do you know anyone from Bielefeld? Have you ever been? Do you know anybody who has ever been? 
Anyone who can answer yes to any of the three questions is disregarded as being in on the conspiracy or have been de been deceived themselves. So the fin Finland conspiracy is like, do you know anybody from Finland? Do you know anybody that's been to Finland? Have you ever been to Finland? Right. And most people would say no to almost all of those questions, if not all three. So, you know, it, is this true or not? I don't know. Could this entire thing just be made up? And, like, maybe it's to hide what the... Uh, Peruvians are up to or something. The Peruvians, you indeed. never know. So I mean, Easter Island. That's the uh, right. That's the uh, Finland doesn't exist. Experience. No, that's uh, something I've never debunked. heard of. Um, wow. Yeah, there's, it's interesting to read. <laughs> you had on. me worked up at first. Yeah, you're ready to <clears throat> ready to go full. Yeah. It's like, well, what about Nokia? Damn it. Yeah. Well, it was just there for fishing. Their first logo is a fish. <laughs> Which is pretty... I mean, they're old as shit, that company. Yeah, the 18... They used yeah. to make pulp mills. Right. Like, they would just... I guess all the... Squeeze all, it into All those trees and in Finland, it makes yeah. sense. Yeah. Yeah, I mean... The opposite of a sea. I guess that's the only, like, fuel resource they have is, like, f firepower. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, because there's not a lot of oil. And I'm sure they can do natural gas, but they import... Right. Almost all of there, and that's got to be and expensive. And, and like the like the solar doesn't really work. They do a lot of hydro uh, hydro thermal. I guess that's a, thermal. You know the one where they dig down. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Geothermal. I'm sorry. Geothermal, but I bet you a hydro as well. I mean, a lot of water. Yeah, mm -hmm. I think it's a lot of lakes. Yeah. But anyway, so that's the Finland yeah. doesn't exist. That was good. That was a good one. Yeah. Um, mine's completely different. Okay. Than that. This it, is Finland does exist? That, yeah, this is uh, it's very strange that that's what I decided to do, but there's a conspiracy out there called Finland does exist. Oh, wow. Yeah. Interesting. And you kind of covered it at the, the end of The president is Taylor Swift, yeah. right? <laughs> yeah, Taylor Swift. Yeah, I was going to go even. Yeah, let's just stop that right <laughs> there. Um, no, I'm talking about uh, a lady named Beatrice Sparks and a book that she wrote called, uh, well, a book that she put together, maybe, called Go Ask Alice. You ever okay. heard of the book Go Ask Alice? Mm, I don't think so. It's a big, um, <clears throat> it became a big kind of anti-drug book in its own way. But okay. I'm going to tell you all about it. Um, there has uh, always been some sort of question as to, uh, well, the book was billed as by Anonymous from uh, from the very start. and okay. uh, But there's always been some sort of question that perhaps someone wrote it and... <laughs> kind of in the light about everything basically the okay. story is not true so um i got this idea from uh i do audiobooks and i listened to this one called unmask alice lsd satanic panic and the imposter behind the world's most notorious diaries it's by rick emerson so he talks about this lady uh beatrice sparks and how she came to put together the book go ask alice um <clears throat> from a new yorker Excuse me, goodness. From a New Yorker article, uh, How a Mormon Housewife Turned a Fake Diary into an Enormous Bestseller by Casey Sepp. Beatrice Ruby Matthews was born in 1917 in a mining camp near a railroad running through a south through southeastern Idaho. The point of me telling you all these details is just to, you know, show where she came from. This is all true. 1917? Yeah. Her mm. mother, Vivian, went into a labor and went into labor on a train, told a porter to look after her two older children, and fetched a medic to help deliver the baby. Vivian and her husband, Leonard, had two more kids, raising their family mostly in Utah, before scandalizing the neighbors by getting a divorce. 
So that's all true. After this uh, scandalizing uh, with the divorce, it left Vivian uh, supporting five children. So she went to work at a restaurant where Beatrice would later join her. Um, By 18, Beatrice had made her way to Santa Monica, where she took another waitressing job and fell in love with a Mormon from Texas named Lavorne Sparks. They married, moved to his hometown, and started a dry cleaning business. You ever seen that uh, Coen Brothers movie, uh, The Man Who Wasn't There? Mm -hmm. Dry cleaning. Wash without water. (laughs) Lavorne made a lucrative investment in prospecting the Permian Basin and a wash in oil money. The couple moved back to L.A. where Sparks raised her younger sister, basically took care of her family and uh, the family that her mom couldn't take care of. Um, But during all of this time, she was a big writer. She would write uh, poetry plays, comic book advice columns. Um, Sometimes she'd use her own name. Sometimes she'd go B. Sparks or Busy B. or Susan Lavorne. Um, Either way, she was intent on being a writer, and so she would contribute her work to wherever would take her, basically. Um, So uh, later on, her son would go to BYU, Big Mormon College. Beatrice and Lavorne moved into a mansion in Provo, Utah, which... um, I didn't get a lot of details on this, but apparently Provo, Utah is uh, the fraud capital of America. Hmm. <laughs> I was like, that might be for another episode right there, because I've, I've jotted that down in my ideas. It was a really list. dangerous city we looked up. Remember that time? Uh, Provo was? Yeah, Provo's pretty dangerous. Oh, was that the one? I do yeah, remember like uh, more dangerous talking about like, that. Like, per capita crime was like higher than Chicago. Right, and it's Something the like fraud that. capital. Like, uh, But um, I guess it's... Uh, the state is estimated by some to boast a Ponzi scheme for every 100,000 people. So um, Sparks went to work for a multi-level marketing scheme, writing essays that recorded were recorded on vinyl by the likes of Pat Boone and Art, Art Linkletter. Um, she would uh, come to kind of get to know Art Linkletter, uh, or Linkletter, rather. Um, would-be salesmen were lured with the promise of making 16 grand a month by hawking the records, which were filled with wholesome content about how to maintain family unity or teach your children character. So uh, what I wrote in my notes was she was writing stuff that was read by famous radio personalities of the time. <laughs> so that's how she got to know Art Linkletter. Letter. Link Letter. You ever heard the name Art? Yeah. I had, and I didn't actually know a damn thing about him until I was doing this story. I was like, yeah, he's a famous radio personality. That's um, right. Yeah. But really pretty huge in his field. Um, he, uh, I'll read a little bit about him. I, I think I have too much about him in my notes, so forgive me, but we'll, we'll get in there. Um, he was a Canadian-born American radio and television personality. He was the host of a show called House Party, which uh, was on CBS radio and television for 25 years. I'm like, wow. (laughs) And those were the early days, too. Um, He did another show called People Are Funny, which I'd never heard of. That aired on NBC radio for 19 years. (laughs) Like, Jesus, dude. Like, that's um, almost as long as we've been alive. Um, 19 years, yep. Um, old clips from Linkletter's house party program were later featured as segments on the first incarnation of Kids Say the Darndest Things, which was also a Linkletter thing. Um, he directed radio programs for fairs and expositions in the mid-1930s. Afterwards, he went to San Francisco and continued his radio career. Um, in 1943, funny enough, he pled guilty to uh, falsely claiming U.S. citizenship, so uh, he was an illegal immigrant. Um, he was fined $500 and permitted to apply for citizenship. <laughs> 
things were at a different time. Well, I mean, Although yeah. Canadian immigrants were different. Sure, right? they still are. Yeah. In the 1940s, he worked in we Hollywood. <laughs> in the 40s, he was in Hollywood with uh, John Goodall on their uh, pioneering radio show, People Are Funny. Um, the series served as a prototype for uh, for future radio television game shows. I put, uh, just think, without uh, Linkletter, uh, perhaps we would never have uh, game shows. Or without the illegal immigrant, we might not have game right. shows. That's true. Um Funny enough, uh, Linkletter would decline an opportunity offered by his friend Walt Disney to invest in the Disneyland theme park project. Oh. Um, yeah, and uh, let's see. Uh, due to Linkletter's doubts, uh, he, Linkletter just had doubts about uh, how successful something like that would be. You know, right. something that large was kind of yeah. You know, it was certainly uh, going out on a limb. But um, out of friendship for Disney, Linkletter uh, volunteered his experience as a live program broadcaster to help organize ABC's coverage of the opening of Disneyland in 1955 and uh, what was on his 43rd birthday. Um, besides being an on-air host, he recruited two other co-hosts, um, none other than uh, Ronald Reagan and Bob Cummings. This hmm. isn't the first time he'd be involved with the Reagan. We'll get to that. Um the park opened uh, opening experience convinced Linkletter that Disneyland was going to be a huge success. Uh, when Disney asked what he could do to show his gratitude for the broadcaster's role in the successful launch of the park, Linkletter asked for Disneyland's camera and film concession for its first 10 years, a request that was quickly granted and uh, certainly became extremely lucrative <laughs> for Art Linkletter because uh, they were putting out you know cartoons and all sorts of stuff at that point, and right. that was his baby for the first 10 years. Yeah. So, yeah, made quite a pile on that. Um, let's see. There was a, in a 1961, Linkletter and his son Jack appeared together in a show called The Bible Man, uh, one of the last episodes of Dick Powell's Zane Gray Theater, which was a Western thing. Zane Gray's a Western writer. That aired for five seasons on CBS. Um, and that was one of two dramatic television appearances. His second would be on um, an episode of... Uh, Wagon Train in 1962 alongside Nancy Reagan. When on television, he otherwise played himself. So it Man sounds like Nancy I'm getting Reagan? into it. Yeah. Hmm. Sounds like I'm getting into conspiracies over here myself. But um, those two would get together, uh, and this would will come up a little bit in my story, uh, in the uh, Just Say No campaign. So um, my point with all of that about Linkletter is that he's a pretty big deal. Um, let's see. A little bit later, after all the things I'm going to talk about, he's a registered Republican who campaigned for his old friend Ronald Reagan for President of the United States. Linkletter became a political organizer and a spokesman for the United Seniors Association, which was kind of an alternative to AARP. Um, he was active in campaigning for more stringent restrictions on elderly motorists. <laughs> so, like, yeah, hmm, interesting. Uh, that's your platform. He hated old drivers. <laughs> he was... Um, also a member I got here of President's Council on Service and Civic Participation. So, you know, he was uh, into getting people to, to participate in their uh, communities and whatnot. Um, let's see. But we're getting in a little bit closer to where I'm going with all this. In 1978, he, uh, he had written the foreword to the best-selling self-help book, Release Your Breaks, by James W. Newman. I believe none of us should ever stop growing, learning, changing, and being curious about what's going to happen next. None of us is perfect, so we should be eager to learn more and try to be more effective persons in every part of our lives. I put that in there because that's funny. Like, he's basically just talking about people uh, learning to give up their uh, driving. <laughs> right. <laughs> it's like, well, that's awfully dramatic. <laughs> but, um, 
right. mean, I guess if it works, it works. Yeah. And I'm sorry, that was not getting into what I was going to talk about. <laughs> I was uh, a little bit ahead of myself. Um, but the dude lived to be uh, 90, uh, gosh, how old did he? 97 years old. Um, that was, uh, he died in 2011. He and his wife Lois had five children in their life. Um, and uh, where I'm where I'm kind of connecting Beatrice Sparks with Art Linkletter is uh, with the death of his youngest child, Diane. And um, this was in uh, October 4th, 1969. His daughter, Diane, was 20 years old, and she died from jumping out of the sixth-floor kitchen window. Um, he claimed that her death was drug-related um, and that she was on LSD. And uh, toxicology tests later determined there were no drugs in Diane's system at the time of her death. Um, though I did read in an Esquire article that uh, the autopsy never actually tested for LSD because it was still kind of a, a, a new thing, 1969. Like, I mean, it was around, certainly. Right. But, I mean, obviously... Like right. easy in the, the the acid tests and all that, but uh, but it was still like something people didn't know a whole lot about. Um, but after her death, uh, Linkletter spoke out against drugs to prevent children from straying into a drug habit. On October twenty fourth, nineteen sixty nine, he said, "Anybody who has said anything which would encourage my daughter to take LSD was unwittingly a part of being her murderer." His uh, record, which I didn't know this, thought it was kind of cool. We love you, call collect. Recorded uh, before her death featured a discussion about permissiveness in modern society and uh, actually won a uh, 1970 Grammy Award. Um, permissiveness, <laughs> at least according to Wikipedia, a permissive society, also referred to as a permissive culture, is used to describe a society in which social norms become increasingly liberal, especially with regard to sexual freedom. So um, speaking out against that, you know. Hmm. 1969, 1970, it was a big time for that. But um, now back to Beatrice Sparks and where the hell we're going with all of this. Um, whether she began working on her book, uh, Go Ask Alice, before or after the death of Linkletter's daughter um, isn't really stated anywhere, but I think she had, uh, she kind of had some of the same sort of aims with her interests at this time and that she was trying to, or at least claimed to be trying to help people build more wholesome families, uh, kind of doing the, the Mormon thing, you mm -hmm. know, trying to write books and promote this sort of lifestyle. Right. Um, and so uh, she had come up with this, uh, she claims that she had written this book called Go Ask Alice, and it was based on these diaries she had gotten from a girl at this summer camp. She worked as, like, counselors, did all these sorts of things with kids, especially uh, girls, and that uh, this girl... Um, had ended up dying basically and so she put together this diary published it so kids wouldn't do drugs anymore mm. <laughs> so uh, i'll from uh, wikipedia this is a uh, a little bit about go ask alice the book uh the manuscript that later became go ask alice was initially prepared for publication by beatrice sparks a mormon youth counselor then in her early 50s so uh so you know she was already she wasn't old but you know, getting well there. back then she probably looked like she was ninety eight. <laughs> right, I was just 50. thinking that too. I actually looked up some pictures of her. I was like, yeah, she didn't really change her look from then until she she lived quite a long life too. She died in. Well, it was easy like, back then. You just take right. a look at thirty, and then you just keep that look until you're ninety <laughs> and you die. Much. Same um, hair, same clothes. 
<laughs> but she was a Mormon uh, youth counselor. Uh, Sparks had reportedly noted that the general public at that time lacked knowledge about uh, youth drug abuse, which uh, absolutely was um, true, I'm sure. And she likely had both educational and moral motives for publishing the book, which, yes, I've already said she did. Sparks later claimed that the book was based on a real diary she received from a real teenage girl. I already told you that. Although this claim was never substantiated and the girl was never been identified. And there was a big part in the book that kind of gave me this idea to talk about this, that uh, he was never able to find this person either. There's lots of people they thought it was, but, mm -hmm. you know, if she, if Beatrice Sparks actually knew this person or not is me. This is from um, an Esquire article uh, called Go Ask Alice is a Lie, but Bookstores Won't Stop Selling It by Jonathan Russell. Uh, little is known about the source material behind Go Ask Alice, Sparks' own account of obtaining the diary, according to Emerson, that's the guy that wrote the uh, Unmask Alice book, changed with every telling. Emerson provides a probable inspiration, a young girl staying at a Mormon summer camp at Brigham Young University. Sparks had a long history of presenting herself as a psychologist or a youth counselor, though she had no degree or license. Despite this, her unverified claims were printed in numerous stories about her. A worried counselor in the camp called Sparks when a girl Emerson calls Brenda, <clears throat> and this is one of the girls he thought might be the uh, the Alice uh, in the Go Ask Alice. Uh, this girl had suffered a breakdown. Sparks, Emerson suggests, spoke to the girl and then kept up with her for some time afterward. Um, so yeah, like uh, come to find out, like later, several years later, um, you would see on like the uh, Library of Congress uh, entry that Beatrice Sparks was listed as the author of this book. So I'll just go ahead and say that. Okay. It's debunked that it's by Anonymous. Like, okay. Even after all of this, she claimed, well, no, it came from diaries. But later on, it would be proven that many other books, just like Go Ask, like similar sorts of themes, like, hey, this is a diary, almost like early found footage but for books okay <laughs> right know? yeah it's right. like these are just diary entries from these kids the Blair like, Witch book right exactly um and she was publishing books up into like 2012 2013 oh, 2014 wow. yeah yeah I mean so she was at it for a long time <laughs> wow um uh, with the help of Art Linkletter, though, the manuscript uh, that was Go Ask Alice uh, was passed on to his literary agent, who sold it to Prentice Hall. Linkletter, would, um, who had become a prominent anti-drug crusader, like I said, um, also helped publicize the book. Even before its publication, Go Ask Alice had racked up large advanced orders of 18,000 copies. So, uh, so I wrote my notes. That's why all the link letter crap, because I'm like with his like sort of getting behind oh, it yeah. and his daughter dying. It was like, boom, like 18,000 copies. All right. And she'd never published a book in her life. Um, the title itself, um, in case all of you listeners don't know, uh, was taken from a line in the 1967 Jefferson Airplane song, White Rabbit. Um, mm wherever she says go ask Alice when she's 10 right. feet tall uh, the lyrics in turn reference scenes in Lewis Carroll's 19, er, 19 1865 novel Alice's Adventures in Wonderland so you know the song is believed to be a a story about someone going on a trip, right. <laughs> a drug experience. It so wasn't about like, Alice's Restaurant. It was not about Alice's Restaurant, okay. which is actually a more entertaining song, but, uh, you know, yeah, you Alice's hour. a good song, right? <laughs> um, so, uh, let's see. Let me give you a synopsis of the book. It's hard to find a short, concise synopsis. Um, <clears throat> wait, that's, I'm sorry. 
That's not right. <laughs> this is from a Goodreads social app for readers. It started when she was uh, served a drink laced with LSD in a dangerous party game. I think this is actually from the back of the book. Within months, she was hooked, trapped in a downward spiral that took her from her comfortable home and loving family to the mean streets of an unforgiving city. It was a journey that would rob her of her innocence, her youth, and ultimately her life. So um, it uh, has uh, the taglines, read her diary, enter her world, you will never forget her. <laughs> and um, I read this book uh, when I was in high school, and uh, it actually is, a, I'll say, quite compelling. I absolutely believed it, but I'm kind of gullible with books, too. So, I mean, like, now that I, I know that this lady wrote it, I'm like, well, it doesn't make it any less strong. It's just... Uh, I don't know. It was a weird thing for her to lie about because it sounds like she lied about quite a bit, of, <laughs> quite a bit throughout her career. Right. You know, um, the epilogue to the book states that the subject of the book died three weeks after the diarist's decision not to keep a third diary. The diarist was found dead in her home by parents when they returned from a movie. She died from a drug overdose, either premeditated or accidental. The epilogue says that while the precise cause of death was never determined, it is but one of thousands of drug overdoses every year. So that's kind of, it's almost like an after-school special at the end of the book. Right. Okay. Um, as far as the actual diarist's name, um, the anonymous diarist's name is never actually revealed in the book. So um, Alice uh, isn't necessarily the name of the the girl that the book is about. Um, there's a part of the book where the diarist describes having sex with a drug dealer. She quotes an onlooker's remark indicating that her name may be Carla, although um, so the Alice might actually be Carla. Although a girl named Alice appears very briefly in the book, she is not the diarist, but a fellow runaway whom the diarist meets on the streets in Coos Bay, Oregon. So, um, so yeah, basically this girl, uh, she is at a friend's house at this party and they're going to lace, they have like a bunch of cups of Coca-Cola and they're going to lace only some of them with LSD. They're passing them uh, to different people in the circle and you might get one that's laced and you might not, but this girl in the book gets one and immediately becomes hooked, becomes a junkie within like two weeks. Of and, course. Yeah. Right. So the book is all about all of these horrible experiences she goes through being this uh, person that you know, her gateway drug was LSD. And that was the they, whole... That was the whole, uh, from the 20s on, probably even yeah, before that. The misconception. Like, the entire, since there's been, you know, publicly viewed media of any, right. you know, whether it be on radio or movies or books or whatever, mm -hmm. they're always doing that. Like, you know, remember Reefer Madness, like one right. hit and you're a madman murderer yeah. and you can't like, <laughs> you can't Certainly. stop being main, maniacal yeah. or like, you know. The D.A.R.E. program, one hit of weed and you're going to be, you know, doing things in back alleys with strange men to get right. heroin, you know, like it was like one of anything and you were there. Yeah. You know, but her gateway drug was LSD. Yeah. One hit of acid. Bullshit. You're hooked on it forever. <laughs> right. You know. So, I mean, conceptually, it's like, well, it's kind of, you, you know, but. It's like, huh, did this come from a girl's diary? Because, I mean, that seems pretty far-fetched now that you really start thinking about it. Um, <laughs> Dear diary, today I took acid. Right. Dear diary, the next day, I'm hooked on acid. Let's see, but uh, yeah, despite, I'm moving on. <laughs> but yes, exactly. Like, absolutely ridiculous. Despite the lack of any evidence in the book that the diarist's name is Alice, the covers of various editions have suggested that her name is, and uh, some blurbs uh, are, this is Alice's true story, and you can't ask Alice anything anymore, but you can do something. Read her diary. 
Reviewers and commentators have also frequently referred to the anonymous diarist as Alice, sometimes for convenience. I can see that. She's never actually named. So, um... <clears throat> Public reception, um, in 1971 it was actually finally published. Go Ask Alice quickly became a publishing sensation and an international bestseller, being translated into 16 languages. Its success has been attributed to the timing of its publication at the height of the psychedelic era, when the negative effects of drug use were becoming a public concern. Arlene Pace Nilsson has called it, quote, the book that came closest to being a YA phenomenon. That's a young adult, for those of you not paying attention. Of its time, um... It was uh, ugh, the closest thing to being a YA phenomenon of its time, although she also said it was uh, never as famous as uh, Harry Potter later on or Twilight or Hunger Games, but you also had the internet with a lot of those books. Not all of the Harry Potter books, but the internet certainly helps promote shit. Though. Oh, yeah. In addition to being very popular with its intended young adult audience, Go Ask Alice also attracted adult readers. Um, libraries had difficulty obtaining and keeping enough copies of the book on the shelves to meet demand. Um, there was a 1973 television film based on the book, um, and librarians reported having to order additional copies of the book each time the film was broadcast. Um, also, it went on to become one of the most banned books of all time, too. Huh. Uh, by 1975, more than 3 million copies of the book had reportedly been sold, and by 79, the paperback edition had been reprinted 43 times. Good grief. <laughs> right. Huge. Like, I mean, eventually, shouldn't everybody already have a copy in their house that they stole from their right. local library? Well, looking at some articles about it, it's like, yeah, like everybody's like older brother, older sister, whatever, had a copy of it. Like everybody had a copy of it. You know, huh. it was a, Interesting. Know. Um, the book remained continuously in print over the ensuing decades with reported sales of over 4 million copies by 1998 and over 5 million copies by 2009. The actual number of readers probably... Wow, so still sold a million copies <laughs> yeah. in the past 20 yep. years? I was at Barnes & Noble uh, just this past week. and you stole uh, a copy. No, but they had like a, a whole big chunk of them on the shelf. Really? Like it wasn't just one copy. Really? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I was huh. surprised by that. And don't most of those times, they just have like one, maybe two copies yeah, of a book yeah. I mean, there will be some books There might that, be some that they have in the back or right, something. But. Like books, maybe you get used for school sometimes too. A lot of times they'll have more of those books that like they know kids are using for classes right. and stuff. Wow, but, yeah. that's amazing. The um, actual number of readers probably surpassed the sales figures, yeah, no doubt, as library copies and even personal copies were likely circulated to more than one reader. Go Ask Alice has been cited as establishing both the commercial potential of, potential of young adult fiction in general and the genre of young adult anti-drug novels and has been called, quote, one of the most famous anti-drug books ever published. Absolutely true. Are people reading it for the anti-drug message or to make fun of the anti-drug message? I think, um... It's a pretty compelling story. I think it's more to make You've fun read of the it. anti. Yeah, like okay. I remember, um, like I mean, because this girl gets hooked on drugs and like all these horrible things happen, and it's like you know, like at the time of reading it, you don't really think about not believing it. She until starts later. listening to rock and roll music, <laughs> right? But yeah, she just. I mean, she quickly. It's not anything quite as innocent as that. Like she quickly like is kind of a prostituting herself and stuff like oh, all, all the wow. all of the horrible shit that you <laughs> right. hear in the, the 80s, immediate yeah. effects of doing one well that's kind of why i tied it to nancy reagan a little bit too <laughs> because all of these things later on would be still the right. things she's saying happen and right it's like i mean yeah of course they do but it's like sure i mean but it you know that's just just you're using fear. A which, million people uh, like, jump on trampolines. One of them falls off. <laughs> right. Doesn't mean that everybody falls off. Exactly. And I mean, LSD is not really a gateway drug. You know. Well, but, it is a like, gateway, but not to other drugs. <laughs> right. 
But um, critical response. Uh, Go Ask Alice received positive initial reviews, including praise from Webster Schott in the New York Times, who called it an extraordinary work, a superior work, and a document of horrifying reality that possesses literary quality. It was also recommended by Library Journal, Publishers Weekly, and the Christian Science Monitor, and ranked number one on the American Library Association's 1971 list of best books for young adults. Some reviews focus on the realism of the book's material without further addressing the literary merit of the book. According to Nielsen and Lauren Adams, the book was not subjected to regular forms of literary criticism because it was presumed to be the real diary of a dead teenager. Lena Goldberg has suggested that the publishers were motivated to list the author as anonymous, partly to avoid such criticism. Years after the publication, Go Ask Alice continued to receive some good reviews, often in the context of defending the book against censors. In a 1995 Village Voice column for Banned Books Week, Nat Hintoff described it as, quote, an extraordinarily powerful account of what it's actually like to get hooked on drugs. That, quote, doesn't preach. It isn't a preachy book. I'll give it, it's, it's pretty, okay. like, you know, the All approach right. is, it's decent. But, um, however, starting in the 1990s, the book began to draw criticism for its heavy-handedness, melodramatic style, and inauthenticity in view of the growing evidence that it was fiction rather than a real teenager's diary. Reviewing the book again for the New York Times in 1998, Mark Oppenheimer called it, quote, poorly written, laughably written, and incredible, although some other writers have pointed to the material as being plausible or even appealing to young readers. It's like, yeah, absolutely it is. I mean, it's still a a good story, (laughs) fiction. Right. The portrayal of the diarist's drug use progressing from unwittingly and Adjusting LSD to injecting speed within a few days and making a similar quick transition from her first use of marijuana to heroin has been deemed unrealistic. Yes. Yeah. The book has been criticized for equating homosexuality with degradation, illness, sin, and guilt. More recent analyses have expressed ethical concerns with the book's presentation of fiction to young readers as a true story. Despite all the criticisms, the book is frequently called a young adult classic. Um, yeah. Although school boards and committees reached varying conclusions about whether Go Ask Alice had literary value, educators generally viewed it as a strong cautionary warning against drug use. And, I mean, it is that. I'll All give right. it that. However, some adults who read the book as teens or preteens have written that they paid little attention to the anti-drug message and instead related to the diarist's thoughts and emotions or vicariously experienced the thrills of her rebellious behavior. Reading the book for such vicarious experience has been suggested as a positive alternative to actually doing drugs. Go Ask Alice has also been used in curricula dealing with mood swings and death. Um... <clears throat> Yeah. So uh, in the beginning, I had said it was inspired by the book Unmask Alice, uh, this whole me talking about it. Um, If it's interesting, uh, Rick Emerson goes into detail, and it's fascinating. Uh, I um, have a little synopsis of his book from Amazon, because uh, it is a pretty good book. I listened to it. It was really fun to listen to, actually, because it was kind of set up. I mean, it's true crime, basically, but about a book. (laughs) Uh, Two teens, two diaries, two social panics, one incredible fraud. And I'll talk about it a little bit in a second, but uh, her next book was called, um, oh, well, I'll get to it. I can't remember it off the top of my head right now. Jay's Journal. There you go. It's called Jay's Journal, and that one kind of ignites the satanic panic. That's why they say two teens, two diaries, two social panics. In 1971, Go Ask Alice reinvented the young adult genre with a blistering portrayal of sex, psychosis, and teenage self-destruction. The supposed diary of a middle-class addict, Go Ask Alice terrified adults and cemented LSD's fearsome reputation, fueling support for the war on drugs. Five million copies later, Go Ask 
Pascalis remains a divisive bestseller, outraging censors and earning new fans, all of them drawn by the book's mythic premise, A Real Diary by Anonymous. But Alice was only the beginning. In 1979, another diary rattled the culture, setting the stage for a national meltdown. The posthumous memoir of an alleged teenage Satanist, Jay's journal merged with a frightening new crisis, adolescent suicide, to create a literal witch hunt shattering countless lives and poisoning whole communities. In reality, Go Ask Alice and Jay's journal came from the same dark place. A serial con artist who betrayed a grieving family, stole a dead boy's memory, and lied her way to the National Book Awards. <laughs> so he's huh. really hard on Beatrice Sparks in right. this book. Right, uh, sounds like and, it. And, um, I mean, she, um, through all the stories he tells about her that don't involve Go Ask Alice, it's like, yeah, she was kind of a con artist. Like, she had a she she had a track record. We'll just put it that way. Right. <laughs> and never was really much called out for it. Do you think that the mm-hmm. book would have been as popular if it was just released as, like, is a made-up story or do you think that its popularity yeah. got because of it being diaries yeah i think that i think that that had a lot to do with it myself was it, yeah. was it written well to where it's like people I read mean, it because of its writing or do they read it because of the like salaciousness of right like a, i mean i think it's both i didn't think it was horribly written from what i remember now i mean it's not the, like you know great literature or anything right. but it is also supposed to be the diaries of a teenage girl so it's like it's more realistic if it's poorly written in some areas you know what i mean like so you don't yeah. like it doesn't really matter like as with much hearts on the eyes and stuff sure yeah, yeah like you know so <laughs> i mean like you don't really have to be all that great of a writer to have pulled it off it's just the you know what what kind of story are you telling with the interest right. so, okay. so yeah i think it's really compelling and and the fact that you might think it's true is definitely the reason that a lot of people read it i think right yeah. so and then i mean just the details the salaciousness of it yeah. what is it I mean, sold under like if you go to the store is it under fiction or non-fiction um gosh you know i don't even remember or is it under like it's probably under like you know young adults so then they can just have it all in the right like i'll I don't even remember because I just walked over and saw it. But uh, I don't know. I see books yeah. and I just throw them on the ground. Because I mean, the, the, that one article I, I quoted from uh, the guy did say that like some bookstores will have it under fiction, whereas others won't. So right. like where Barnes and Noble had it, I I don't quite remember. It was just right. in the young adult Near section, the, um, like, biscotti section. <laughs> I always get kind of lost in the kids section at Barnes and Noble if I ever go there because I'm like, I don't. The signs are all weird. Like I can't figure out where anything is over there because it's all like, here's some series, here's some series. I'm like, I'm not looking for the series. Here's eighty dollar <laughs> records. <I'm, laughs> right. Here's well, a tree. Most of their records and stuff are pretty cheap now. They have a lot of sales now, so you can go get some good stuff for pretty inexpensive <laughs> right. if you want it. Not yeah. a sponsor. <laughs> Um, so yeah, Unmask Alice, LSD, Satanic Panic, and the imposter behind the world's most notorious diaries is a true story of contagious deception. It stretches from Hollywood to Quantico and passes through a tiny patch of Utah nicknamed the fraud capital of America. It's the story of a doomed romance and a vengeful celebrity of a lazy press and a public mob of two suicidal teenagers and their exploitation by a literary vampire. Unmask Alice, where truth is stranger than nonfiction. So that's a pretty good blurb, though. Okay. This brings up another book. Um, like I said, I was going to talk about Jay's Journal. Uh, I'm just going to do a little bit from Wikipedia about Jay's Journal because uh, I find it quite fascinating. Um, <clears throat> 
Actually, I'm sorry. This is from a New Yorker article. Um, Soon, the libraries that stock Sparks' work needed more shelf space. After several years of stewing privately over having to remain unknown amid the success of Go Ask Alice, Mrs. Anonymous quickly published two books, both of which came with her name on the cover and a round of publicity revealing her as the editor of the earlier book. The first, published in 1978, was titled Voices, and instead of a single diary, it offered four teenage testimonies. Mark confesses his suicidal thoughts, Jane reveals what it was like to be a runaway dragged into sex and drugs, Millie describes how a teacher took advantage of her and introduced her to lesbianism, um... I was going to say, sounds like people have been reading this one more recently. And Mary tells the story of being brainwashed into a cult and then deprogrammed. Oh, that definitely. <laughs> yeah. Sparks claimed that the narratives were constructed from interviews with hundreds of kids in dozens of cities, but the four voices were similar to one another and to the supposedly singular voice of Go Ask Alice. A few months later, Sparks was back in the diary business with Jay's journal. She claimed in the book's introduction that a woman had read an article about her and then called to ask if Sparks might take the journal of her son, a deceased 16-year-old who'd had a genius-level IQ, and use it to expose the dangers of witchcraft. Accepting this solemn task, Sparks sorted through the boy's possessions, interviewed his friends and teachers, and organized his journal into more than 200 entries. A small disclaimer on the copyright page indicated that, quote, times, places, names, and some details have been changed to protect the privacy and identity of Jay's family and friends. In fact, such changes, the boy's hometown, Pleasant Grove, became Apple Hill, a local restaurant, the Purple Turtle, became the Blue Moo. They, um, all of these function like breadcrumbs for those who wish to track down the book's real setting and characters. Jay, they learned, was actually Alden Barrett, and nearly two decades after Jay's journal uh, was released, his younger brother Scott self-published an account of Alden's life and the events surrounding his suicide. His book, A Place in the Sun, portrays his brother as an aspiring poet who excelled at debate but suffered from depression. It also reproduces images and transcripts of all the entries in Alden's actual diary. According to Scott, Sparks drew on only about a third of them, fabricating nearly 90% of what she published, including entries about how, after being sent to reform school, Jay learned to levitate objects, developed ESP, attended midnight orgies, and was possessed by a demon demon named Raoul. (laughs) Right. Which is normally a demon name. (laughs) Raul. (laughs) Alden's diary does not mention the occult, and according to Scott, although his brother smoked pot, studied Hinduism, and played with a Ouija board, his real transgressions were rebelling rebelling against the family's Mormon faith and opposing the Vietnam War. And yet Sparks portrayed him as part of a network of cattle mutilators who drained some 3,000 cows of their blood in 22 states. There were other preposterous revisions, including a wedding that she renders as a demonic mass featuring black candles bloodletting, and a kitten sacrifice, but in reality was a quiet, unofficial ceremony between Alden and his high school girlfriend. In the final pages of Jay's journal, Sparks reproduces Barrett's suicide note. I don't want to be sad or lonely or depressed anymore, and I don't want to eat, drink, eliminate, breathe, talk, sleep, move, feel, or love anymore, he wrote. Mom and Dad, it's not your fault. I'm not free. I feel ill, and I'm sad, and I'm lonely. Sparks prefaces those heartfelt words with a few invented entries about Raoul's increasing power over the boy, suggesting that the suicide was the result not of depression but of witchcraft and demons. Barrett's mother was shocked by Sparks' book and said as much when Scott published his rebuttal. By then, the family had fallen apart, the parents divorced, the mother left Pleasant Grove, and the whole family struggled with recurring vandalism of Alden's grave and reports of teenagers recreating events from the diary. 
The Barrett's experience suggests that Sparks' other works may have been based on real source material, but also that her use of such material was fast and loose, if, to say the least. If anything, it got faster and looser. Sparks, who died in 2012 at the age of 95, published books well into her 80s, teenage tragedy after teenage tragedy from It Happened to Nancy, about a 14-year-old who dies from AIDS after being seduced by a man she met at a Garth Brooks concert, <laughs> to Finding Katie, about an abused teen in the foster care system. Um, huh. I thought it would be funny at the very end. I, uh, in my research, came across the BYU library still had a listing for her, and it takes her seriously, like never mentioning any of the controversy. Um, so I'll read a little bit. Beatrice Sparks is an author with Ph.D. in human behavior. She is a specialist in child and adolescent psychology and a member of the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints. Sparks was born to Vivian Johns, and we'll skip that part. She moved to Los Angeles to attend UCLA, where she met and married LaVorne G. Sparks. Their family includes four children and several grandchildren. After attending University of California at Los Angeles, Angeles and Brigham Young University, she started working as an adolescent psychologist. She also taught continuing education courses at Brigham Young University and wrote newspaper columns for the Malibu Monitor, the Santa Monica Outlook, and the California Intermountain News. Her work as an author continued with publishing several books, more than several, but she was most notable for her work editing and producing novels from teenage diaries regarding the themes of adolescent drug use, depression, psychotherapy, pregnancy, witchcraft, suicide, AIDS, attitudes, interpersonal communications, and intergenerational conflict. Sparks has won the uh, American Library Association Young Adult Notable Award, the Christopher Medal, School Library Journal Best Books, <coughs> sorry, excuse me, and Quick Pick for recommended reading by the American Library Association. So, I mean, she really, uh, she served as a judge for the National Book Awards. Like, she really, um, what a fraud. <laughs> wow. <laughs> In addition to her literary work, Beatrice and Lavorne served a mission from the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints from 1986 to 1987. They worked on development and launch of the Family to Family Book of Mormon project. So, uh, yeah, none to mention of any, uh, you know, a lot of those things have been debunked. Like, I mean, she did win all of those awards and things, but as far as her like degrees and all of that right it's like, as far as she never went as far kind in school of a fraud, as yeah. fraudy kind of and she does not have lady. a phd so like they well, all you have to do is say you got one right i have three so that's beatrice sparks and go wow. ask alice debunked hmm. yeah more so jay's journal debunked i guess because that one was definitely or just beatrice sparks debunked <clears throat> What's that? Or just Beatrice Sparks Pretty debunked. much Beatrice Sparks debunked. Yeah. I figured most people know Go Ask Alice, and apparently she... I didn't know about any of her other books. Hmm. I just... Because uh, until more recently, when I listened to that book on Audible, I didn't know it was a fake I only, book. Like I said, when I go to bookstores, I just push them onto the ground. I don't... <laughs> I, I'm, I, I ain't no go, reader. Go in with the scatter method. I ain't no reader. <laughs> I never heard of it, nah. Yep. Well, there you go. Now huh. you have. Interesting. Yeah. Well, debunked. It was hard to find a debunked one, you know. Yeah, harder, it was, at least harder. It was your to, idea, and it was my idea. Yeah, yeah. Like, I mean, there were a lot of them, but most of them were really short. You know, it was like, well, that got debunked. Yeah, like, I mean, so yeah, it was like I could do the short ones, but it was like, how many do you want to know? Like thirty-five <laughs> of them. Right. So yeah, we ended up with a book debunked. But huh. <laughs> a book in a country, yeah, both a book debunked. in a country. Yeah. Good debunkings. Yeah, you don't have to worry about the country if you don't read the book. You know, a true story. Excuse me. Which is funny because Finland has so many books. I wonder how many people in Finland have read that book. 
It did say it was an international bestseller, yeah. so yeah, it does make you wonder. 80% of adults are using right. libraries with their four, five cups of coffee a day. <laughs> right. Man. Sounds like I belong there. Yeah, maybe. They're pretty picky. <laughs> yeah. Well, you know. I mean, we, you know, we're international celebrities, so they might take us. They might take us. Yeah. I'll take Iceland, though, personally. Okay. We'll just do a long distance. <laughs> Anyways, so. Moving on. Um, yeah, so that was uh, debunked. That was our, uh, you know, delve into that one. That one might be a topic we don't address again for a while. That one was tougher. Yeah, it definitely was tougher. So, yeah, you know, next time around. We've, next time, we're, next we're, week we're going to have something toying with some I'm ideas. Sure. Yeah. Um, like we said, we got a one-year anniversary coming up yeah i think it's uh this week from our first episode i knew it was coming because I, I saw a memory on online right so so yeah anyways happy um, one year yeah almost hey thanks for everybody that's out there listening i'm sure we we'll mention it. it again next episode i'm but. sure we also appreciate you listening and telling your friends and yeah you, Donating you know, your organs, doing yeah, all those things. Organdonor.gov. Go on there. Tell your friends. Tell your enemies. Yeah. Write a book about us. And send us emails. Enter name here at yeah. gmail.com. Yeah. All right. And, uh, yeah. Thanks, guys. We'll see you on the next one. Bye.